Today's scripture reading is uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which is on page 369 of the Sanctuary Bibles. Uh, if you're seated here and you don't have a Bible and you'd like one uh, to follow the service with, just raise your hand and Andy will bring a Bible to you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're also welcome to take one of these Bibles home as a gift from Cornerstone. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one, who, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you tonight uh, for your son. We thank you tonight for your word. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, send your spirit to be with us tonight as, um, as we talk about your son in the book of Psalms. Um, in all things, may he be exalted. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. Well, time to time, uh, I, I find myself uh, on the subway in Boston. Not too often, but, uh, you know, every week or so, something like that. And whenever I find myself on the subway in Boston, one of the things I like to do is I like to pay attention to the subway ads. Uh, and one of the things that I find so interesting about subway ads in Boston is that there's so many research universities, so many major hospitals, that you almost always see ads for uh, clinical trials or experiments that are looking for human subjects. And I think this is fascinating. So I have here, this is an ad that I found actually on the web. I didn't see this on the subway. But this is for a trial going on at Mass General uh, where they're actually testing the effects of LED lights on the brain. Uh, so if you're lucky enough to qualify, you can uh, you know, have LED lights shown on your head. Who knows, maybe improve brain function, maybe pick up a few hundred dollars, uh, something like that. Well, I want to congratulate all of you here tonight uh, because you are actually part of the experiment tonight. Now, you're not going to make any money off of it, uh, and you didn't 
technically volunteer for it either, uh, but you're here, so you might as well make the best of it, right? So the experiment is this. Uh, tonight, uh, usually we have like a, a passage of scripture that is our sermon text, uh, but tonight our sermon text is the book of Psalms, all 150-, like packed a snack or something like that, because uh, we might be at it for a while tonight. Uh, just kidding, but maybe, maybe not, we'll see. Uh, so uh, we're going to take, take some time tonight to look at the entirety of the book of Psalms. Now, I'm not actually here to make you suffer by looking at the entire book. Here's actually what I'm hoping to accomplish tonight. Here's why I'm wanting us to look at the book of Psalms as a whole. Two things. The first thing I want to do is I hope by us looking at the book of Psalms uh, from the big picture, I hope to enrich your own interaction with the book. As we get as I look of the book of Psalms, I hope that you can come back to the book of Psalms and enjoy a rich whenever you come back. Is it, I need to change, Aaron, or do I need to grab another mic? Do you want me to just grab another mic? That'll be fine. Yeah, that's great. In the meantime, if you guys can hear me, just come Okay. Um, so, uh, so I, want, I want this to enrich your own experience of the Bible in your own life. So one of the things here at Cornerstone that we believe is we believe that the Bible is a divine book. That is, we believe that the Bible ultimately comes from God. And there's an implication of this that actually drives pretty much everything that I do in my research as a biblical scholar. And this is the conviction that because the Bible is a divine book, God inspired not only its content, but also its shape. So, in other words, not only is, are the words of the Bible inspired, but the actual form of the Bible, the literary genre, the way that the books have been put together, the book structure. And so one of the things that I'm hoping we can do tonight is that a lot of times we think of the book of Psalms as ancient Israel's hymn book, where it's like David's greatest hits album or something like that. But what I want us to do tonight is I want us to think about, I want us to do basically my thought experiment, okay? Um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So here's a thought experiment that I want us to get in, uh, to get a shot with. All right, there we go. All right, we've got it now. Okay, so the thought experiment tonight is what if we read the book of Psalms as a book? In other words, if we, if we decided that we were going to read the book of Psalms uh, not as 150 individual songs that have been preserved for us, but actually that they've been put together with a larger unity and a focus and a message. So what if we thought about them less as an anthology of Israel's greatest hits, but instead thought about it like a concept album, where each individual track contributes to a collective message that's greater than the individual parts? Or if we thought about it like a quilt, right? So think about the way that a quilt works, where each piece of fabric is good and beautiful in its own right, but there's another level of artistry in the way that each square has been arranged and put together and stitched together to make a final product. And so this is how I want us to think about, uh, think about the book of Psalms tonight. Uh, or, uh, for example, we could also think about the book of Psalms uh, as a photo mosaic, where we have 150 individual portraits that have been brought together 
uh, to make one uh, great picture. And the second thing that I'm, I'm hoping that we can do by taking a look at the book of Psalms as a whole is also I hope that this deepens your faith in Jesus. Now, whenever I say that I hope that this uh, deepens your faith in Jesus, I have in mind uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 24. And I guess this is how I justify doing this as part of the Luke series. Uh, so listen to Jesus' words in Luke 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the what? And the Psalms. So it seems like with the way that Jesus reads the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is not just an anthology of songs from ancient Israel, but is actually a book with a prophetic message about his life and work. And what's really interesting uh, whenever we see the way that Jesus and the New Testament authors read the book of Psalms as prophecy is that this is not unusual in the ancient world, actually. So if you look, uh, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and the people who translated the, um, and the people who translated the book of Psalms from Hebrew to Greek, we'll get this figured out eventually, won't we? Okay, I think I got it that time. All right. Uh, so, and the people who translated the book of uh, Psalms from Hebrew into Greek, uh, they all actually interpreted the book of Psalms as prophetic, as about the future in some sense. So, really, there's two questions uh, that we're approaching the book of Psalms with tonight. And there we go, got it. And the first one is this, how has Psalms been put together as a book? And the second, how does Psalms as a book testify to Jesus in the gospel? And basically, what I'm contending tonight is that both of these questions have to be answered together for either answer to be satisfactory. Now, before we jump into the book of Psalms, uh, there are two prerequisites. That's right, you were not done with prerequisites whenever you finished school. So there are two things that the book of Psalms expects you to know. Um, and the first thing is this, the book of Psalms expects you to know about God's covenant with David. So David, in case you're not familiar, was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Um, and a key moment in the reign of King David can, comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is King David is sitting in his palace, uh, his newly built palace, and all of a sudden his heart is struck because he realizes that while he's sitting in his palace, God is being worshipped in a tent. And so what David does is he sets out to build a house for God. He sets out to build God a temple. But God sends a message back to David through the prophet Nathan. And the message is this, David, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. And by that, God meant that he would establish a royal dynasty for David. And I want you to see, here are the words, uh, some of the key words of God's promise that he makes to David. Here's what he says. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So the promise is that David's heir will succeed him as king. He is the one who will build the temple, and he will be God's own son. Now, in some sense, this is about David's son who immediately followed him as king, King Solomon, who built the temple. In some sense, this extends beyond Solomon for the entire succession of kings descended from King David. But from the perspective of the people who wrote the book of Psalms 
and all the people who came after King David, God's promises to David still remain unfulfilled in some sense, awaiting a future king to come. So, the first thing that the book of Psalms assumes that you know is that you know about God's covenant with David. And the second thing is that it assumes you know about the exile to Babylon. If you continue reading about the history of Israel in First and Second Kings, you'll see that David's sons were not faithful to the Lord like he was. And they led God's people into sin and idolatry. And as a result, they were ultimately destroyed. God sent the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, against the city of Jerusalem. And what happened there, the disaster that ensued, is really, really hard to capture. It's hard to feel what really happened whenever Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. But the people were exiled. The temple was burned to the ground. And the Davidic king was, became a slave and a prisoner. And from a geopolitical perspective, Davidic kingship has never been reestablished on the earth. And it's very significant to see that the book of Psalms was put together as a whole in the period after this has taken place. And so these two things are informing the way that the book of Psalms has been put together. God's promise to David and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. So now we're going to actually jump into the book of Psalms and we're actually going to begin with a video that's been put together by the Bible Project that gives a really great introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 
two, which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David, except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. 
Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. All right. I hope you got all that. So what I'm hoping to do for the rest of our time tonight is to build on this kind of explanation of the book of Psalms that you saw in the video. And what I want us to think about is both the shape of the book of Psalms and also how the book of Psalms should shape us um, as followers of Jesus. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that the book of Psalms teaches us about Jesus and hope. And the uh, the first part of this is to see that the architecture of the book of Psalms testifies to hope in a future Messiah. When I use the word architecture, I mean by this the book's organizing and structural framework, the clues to how the book's been put together. 
what the editors of the book cared about the most. See, whenever we read a book, we usually think of something that one person sat down and, and wrote from beginning to end, but we see that's not how the book of Psalms was put together as a whole. Instead, the book of Psalms has topography. That is, it has shape, it has texture, and certain passages have special prominence within the book. And what do we see at these particularly prominent parts of the book of Psalms? Um, well, the video showed you a breakdown of the basic structure of the book of Psalms, that the book of Psalms has five books, and then it has an introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, and the conclusion, Psalms 146 through 50, and I have this up here. But I want you to notice where the Psalms about the future king or the Psalms about God's covenant with David pop up at. First of all, notice that the, the, the introduction and the conclusion both have important psalms that are about the coming future king. Psalms 2, Psalms 148. Also notice that at the end of, of book 2 of the psalms, Psalm 72 is a psalm about the coming king, the ideal king who's going to bring God's blessing to the world. Psalm 89 concludes book 3 of the psalms, and it is a song that is about God's covenant with David. So not only does the book begin and end with the king, but also the transition between books two, three, and four are all about God's covenant with David and the king. And then the Bible Project video showed nicely how in the middle of book one and book five has messianic psalms there. For example, Psalm 18 and Psalm 118. So you begin to see that the people who put together the book of Psalms were very concerned about what thing? about the future king, and they were concerned about the Davidic covenant. And think about the political situation of Israel whenever this book was put together like this. Was there a king on the throne of David whenever this book was put together? There was not. So this is not political propaganda for a reigning king. These are songs of hope and expectation of a king who's not on the throne at the time that the book is put together. They're songs of waiting. And this is one of the things, this is one of the reasons why the book of Psalms is so important for us as Christians. See, what we see is even though for us, Christmas has come, Easter has come for us, right? But we're actually not done waiting. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we are awaiting a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so the book of Psalms helps remind us it helps remind us that we too are a people who are waiting. We too are a people who are hoping. It calls us to anticipate and to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that we have met our heart's love. And it is though we are engaged, right? There is a promise of marriage. But our wedding day has not come yet. And so what should our lives be driven by? It should be driven by hope and expectation that the Messiah will come and he will reign on the earth. Just like that was the hope of the people who put together the book of Psalms. And so I hope that the book of Psalms calls you to join with uh, uh, King David, for example, in Psalm 27, where he concludes his psalm by saying, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he tells us, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Or, this, or the refrain that we see in Psalms 42 and 43, 
which says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Next, we see that the book of Psalms teaches us about Jesus, excuse me, teaches us about Jesus and God's kingdom. Jesus and God's kingdom. As we look uh, throughout the Old Testament, there's a tension between God's kingship and human kingship. And you see this in particular, the Bible teaches that God is the king of Israel. And so, because of that, it's wicked for the people of Israel to ask for a human king for themselves. So, God's kingship and human kingship are kind of like oil and water in certain parts of the Bible. But what we see happening in the book of Psalms is these two threads begin to get pulled together. They begin to come together, and we see this as we look at the way that the different books of the Psalms work together. So we talked about earlier the architecture of the book of the Psalms. Now let's think about what if we read the book of Psalms like a story that has a plot, that has twists, that has turns. It's, a, it's like a symphony that has movements. Well, if you look at so what I want us to do is I want us to trace the way that kingship is developed within the book of Psalms. And we begin with books one and two. Books one and two of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 72, is where almost all of the Davidic Psalms are, almost all the songs that are related to King David. And we could consider this home base for the book of Psalms. In these Psalms, the Davidic king is the hope. And it concludes in Psalm 72 with this glorious picture of the son of David reigning and all the earth blessed under his rule and reign. Now, book three, on the other hand, is the low point of the book of Psalms. Book three opens with a lament that things are not as they should be. And then book three closes on an especially dark note. If this, if this is a symphony, then book three is certainly played in a minor key. There are no praise psalms in book three. And it has the highest concentration of community laments in the entire book of Psalms. And it ends, the second to last psalm is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a lament that has no note of hope at the end of it. In fact, the poet ends Psalm 88 by saying that darkness has become his companion. And then Psalm 89 is a psalm that recounts God's, uh, God's covenant with David, his promise to give David an eternal kingship. But then it laments because at the time, Israel is in exile, and there is no king on the throne of David. In Psalm 89, it's a lament, and he asks God, how long, how long will your anger burn against us? And he asks God, where is your faithfulness to your covenant with David? And that's how book three ends. Now, now we could think of books three and book four of the book of Psalms as like a call and response song. So book four of the Psalms is an answer to the despair of book three. And what's interesting is book four of the Psalms is the only book that does not discuss God's covenant with David. Because book four is interested in something else. The centerpiece of book four of the Psalms is this group of Psalms in Psalms 93 through 99 that we call the enthronement Psalms. And these Psalms have a consistent refrain. And that refrain is, the Lord is king. Yahweh is king. And this is the answer to the hopelessness of book three. And because of this, because God is king, book five offers us renewed hope that on this basis that the son of David will indeed reign on the earth. 
And so this is how the, the song of the king works as it develops in the book of Psalms. And so we begin to see these two threads of God's kingship and the kingship of the son of David beginning to come together. The fact that God is king grounds the hope that David's son will be king one day. And we see this comes out really nicely in Psalm 2. Uh, so let's reread uh, parts of Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 begins, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or, or against his Messiah, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. It's this chaotic scene of these foreign kings who've made a plan to throw off God's rule by throwing off the rule of the king that he has appointed. And notice the next part of the psalm. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It describes the Lord as what? As enthroned. What kind of person is enthroned? Kings are enthroned. This psalm is describing God as the heavenly king. And he laughs. He laughs not because he thinks human rebellion is something that is funny. He laughs because he knows that human rebellion against his rule is futile. And so he laughs because he's, his rule is not threatened by this international rebellion going on in the psalm. And because of that, here's what he says. He rebukes them in anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So why does God's chosen king reign? Because his kingship is not threatened. And so what we begin to see in the book of Psalms is that it's both that God's kingship is the foundation for the hope that, that the son of David will reign, but at the same time also, the son of David, his kingdom, his rule, is the expression and the realization of God's rule in heaven. And this is huge because what this shows is that the book of Psalms teaches that the Messiah will establish God's kingdom on the earth. And what is, what is, the, central, what is the central refrain of Jesus' preaching? That in him, with his arrival, what has arrived on the earth? Kingdom of God. Son of David is here. And because of that, God's rule and God's reign is breaking out on this planet. And so this is what the book of Psalms teaches. And what this does is this calls us, this calls us to reorient our lives towards God's kingdom. Seeing the way that the book of Psalms depicts the kingdom of God and the way that it comes onto the earth through the reign of the son of David, it's a comfort to us and it's a challenge to us. It's a comfort to us because it teaches us that in our moments of darkest despair, whenever we're struggling, whenever we're suffering, whenever, whenever our children rebel, or whenever we lose our jobs, or whenever we're struggling in school, or whenever the darkness in our own minds won't lift, whatever your situation is, whatever trials you're in, Know this, that God is king, and he reigns, and nothing will challenge that. I love the lyrics of a song written by an artist named J.J. Heller, and she says this. She says, 
She says, no matter how the wind may blow, it cannot shake the sun. And so we take great confidence tonight in seeing the unshakable picture of God as king in the book of Psalms. And it challenges us as well. Because as we focus our attention on God's kingdom, we see that often God's agenda is not ours, is it? This is good for us because God's agenda is actually better for us. It's, it's, it's more satisfying. But if we're going to reorient our lives towards God's kingdom, it means that our lives will really be about us giving up our petty kingdoms and embracing the kingdom of God as it comes to us in Christ. I just want to ask, whenever you die, what will people say that you gave your life to? You have one life to spend. Spend it wisely. Give it away. Give it away for Christ and for his kingdom. Jesus described the preciousness of the kingdom of God. He said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that was hidden in a field that a man happens upon. And upon finding that treasure, in his joy, he sells all that he has. And what does he do with the money? He buys that field. So as we look at the book of Psalms, may our, may our entire lives be about nothing more than selling our petty kingdoms to buy that field. And I just, want to, I just want to encourage you, the book of Psalms offers us so much hope, so much significance. It offers us a kingdom that's better than the kingdom that this world offers. It offers us hope in the midst of despair. It offers us comfort in our suffering. But I want you, I want you to see that it only offers that to us in the person of Christ. And so I would just ask you tonight, have you bowed your knee to Jesus as your king? Are you continuing to bow your knee to Jesus as your king and reorienting your life towards his kingdom? We see that the book of Psalms also teaches us about Jesus and suffering. If you read about the life of King David in First and Second Samuel, you'll see a lot of different portraits of David. You'll see David the harpist playing, uh, playing for King Saul. Uh, you'll see uh, David the valiant warrior venturing out and fighting great battles. You'll see David the reigning king. You'll see David the heinous sinner in the Bathsheba episode. You'll see David the repentant sinner. So David, is, David plays many roles in First and Second Samuel. One of the things that I think is interesting, though, if we look at the book of Psalms, I think the primary picture of King David that we get we most often meet David in the Psalms as an innocent sufferer. This is why the first part of the book of Psalms is dominated by laments from King David, in which he is lamenting suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now recall what I said earlier about the fact that the book of Psalms has been put together with a messianic frame. And this actually colors, it changes the way that we read the entire book. And it also changes the role that King David plays as a character in the book. When the, when the book of Psalms is read within this frame, David comes to mean more than just David. And he himself comes to be a prefiguration of his son. 
He comes to be a prefiguration of the Messiah. And what's interesting about this is this is exactly how Peter reads the book of Psalms in Acts 2. Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2 in which he quotes Psalm 16. And after quoting Psalm 16, Peter says, David knew that God had promised that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne. And so whenever David says the words of Psalm 16, he is a prophet prophesying about what would become of his son. This is very interesting that this is the book of the way that the Psalms works. And this is actually is not unique within the Old Testament. Check out the words of Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 34. This is a passage that is talking about God's final salvation of his people. And here's what he says. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them and, and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, where was David whenever Ezekiel wrote these words? He was in his grave. Who is Ezekiel talking about? He's not talking about the literal King David. By David, he means David's son. By David, he means the new David. By David, he means the Messiah. And this is also what's happening in the book of Psalms. And so what we see in the book of Psalms is that we don't just encounter passages that are about the Messiah. We actually encounter the voice of the Messiah himself in King David in the Psalms. And what's remarkable about this is that whenever we read the book of Psalms in this frame, when we hear the voice of the Messiah, we hear the voice of a suffering Messiah. We hear the voice of a Messiah who is betrayed by his closest friends. We hear the voice of a Messiah who suffers for righteousness' sake, but who in that suffering entrusts himself to God and trust that God will, in the end, vindicate him. And this is exactly how the New Testament applies the Psalms to Jesus. To his betrayal, to his crucifixion, and ultimately to his resurrection. And so we see that the book of Psalms teaches us about a Messiah who suffers. And this changes so much about the way that we deal with suffering in our own lives, and particularly about the way that the book of Psalms helps us deal with our own seasons of suffering. And this is a challenge to me because I often, whenever I encounter difficulty, whenever I encounter trials in my life, I tend to treat my suffering as secular. What I mean by that, I just treat it as irreligious, just regular, this is just life. And And I tend to divorce my suffering from God. But when I read the book of Psalms, what Psalms does is it actually invites me to sanctify my suffering. What I mean by that, sanctify is a word that means to make something holy, to make something sacred. It invites me to take my suffering and to pray to God honestly out of it, to bring it to the Lord and view suffering not as something that's secular, but as something that's sacred, something that is an opportunity to deepen my fellowship with God. And so as as we see Jesus as a suffering Messiah, it calls us to sanctify our suffering but in this really unique way, because whenever we begin to hear Jesus' voice in the Psalms, then we find that we're not only invited to pray through our sufferings whenever we encounter these seasons, but we actually find that in our sufferings that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We find Jesus as our companion in the darkness. We find our great high priest who's been tested in every way as we are, 
yet without sin, and who's here to help us in our moment of need. And we also find hope. We find hope that just as God vindicated his son by raising him from the dead, that we who share with Jesus in his suffering will also share with him in his resurrection. So the book of Psalms gives us great hope in our seasons of suffering. And then we see also that the book of Psalms teaches us about Jesus in Scripture. The, book of Psalms, the uh, Bible Project video does a great job uh, of showing us how uh, throughout the book of Psalms, there are combinations over and over and over again of a psalm about the Messiah and a psalm about God's Word. We see it in Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 begins by saying, Blessed is the one whose delight is in God's word. Psalm 2 ends with saying, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Messiah. This is repeated in Psalms 18 and 19 and Psalms 118 and 119. Over and over the message is that God's blessing comes to us through scripture and through faith in the Messiah. So it's no accident that I started tonight by saying that my reason for subjecting you to this experiment is A, to enrich your own interaction with the Bible, and B, to deepen your faith in Jesus. Because this is exactly what the book of Psalms is trying to do to you. This is where Psalms is leading you. My question is, will you follow? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Lord, we do not deserve the kindness that you've shown to us. Lord, we have rebelled against you. We have earned your wrath and your judgment. Yet you offer us blessing. And you offer us your son. We thank you for him. God, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would invite us deeper into who Christ is, that you would invite us deeper into your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.